It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Toy Story came out in November 1995, and I can still remember where I saw it, the Cineplex on the Upper West Side of Manhattan on Broadway and 84th. It was thrilling cinema, not only the characters and the sweet bromance between the brash Buzz Lightyear and protective Woody the Cowboy, but the awesome technical wizardry on display by a little-known studio called Pixar. 21 years later, it's hard to imagine a time before computer animations were a thing. But before Toy Story, anything other than an animation drawn by hand was this futuristic faraway dream. Studios didn't even have the tools to do it, either the software or the physical machines. And so on top of developing this incredibly compelling story about the toys of a little boy called Andy, Pixar had to develop the cutting edge technology to make it all possible. But behind the scenes, as they were developing this wonderful story and the technology to tell it, Pixar was actually flirting with financial ruin. The company, owned by Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, was racing against time to figure out how to make enough money to keep the lights on. Yeah, you wouldn't know it from the success that Toy Story ultimately enjoyed. But the movie was a moonshot, a gigantic, all-or-nothing gamble on the belief that computer-animated characters could be just as compelling, just as believable as the hand-drawn classics from the likes of The Lion King. Pixar's very survival hinged on Toy Story's success. Hi, I'm Brad Stone. And I'm Pia Gadkari. And this week on Decrypted, we'll take you on Pixar's roller coaster ride, those crucial final months as the company rushed to finish its first feature film while simultaneously preparing for a make-or-break IPO. Yet Pixar decided it would go public just nine days after the premiere of Toy Story. The entire future of the company was riding on the success of that film. And what Pixar proved with Toy Story ultimately transformed not just the company, but also film history too. This year, out of the top five grossing films in all categories, two were computer animations. Pia, can you name them? I can. One was The Secret Life of Pets, and in the top spot was Finding Dory, a movie made by Pixar. Now, to fully understand just what was at stake for Pixar at the time, we need to go back to a nadir in the career of its maverick owner, Steve Jobs. It's a chapter of his career that sometimes gets skipped over because Steve Jobs was in between his two stints at Apple. This is the period when he started Next Computer after he famously got fired by his own board at Apple, cast out into Silicon Valley's wilderness. And the years that followed that humiliating dismissal. But before he returned to Apple, those are the years when Steve Jobs was the owner and CEO at Pixar. 
And that's one of the reasons why there was so much pressure on Toy Story to be a hit. The reputation and credibility of Jobs was actually tied into Pixar's success. Right, but Pixar did not have an easy relationship with Steve Jobs. I would characterize Steve Jobs' relationship with Pixar at that time, so this is 1994 about, as a like an absentee landlord. So sort of the investor or the owner that never really comes to the property. That's Lawrence Levy. He's a slight, wiry man with lots of tussled, sandy hair. He has a cheerful, almost boyish air about him. Last month, he came out with a memoir about his time at Pixar, and it's called To Pixar and Beyond. It was in 1994 that Steve Jobs personally recruited Lawrence to become the CFO of Pixar and essentially to guide the company through its IPO. After Apple, he had started Next, as you know, and uh, he was working full-time at Next Computer, and Pixar had been more of an investment on the side, and so there was no habit of him going there. I mean, maybe he went there once a month, but I doubt even that often. Uh, And so the company was very guarded about him and had a lot of fear that this kind of very delicate, creative, homey kind of culture that they had created would be hurt or even destroyed by the stories that they had heard about Steve. And it must have been something of a balancing act for Lawrence, letting Pixar's creativity flourish on one hand while building out the kind of business plan that Steve Jobs wanted. I quickly was sort of given that uh, moniker, if you will, like you're Steve's guy. And so, you know, and so there was some fear, you know, was I going to be the person that carried into Pixar all the things that they feared about Steve? And uh, and so that began to feel it's not really what I signed up for because, I, well, no, I'm not carrying any of those things. I'm here to fix those things. But people didn't know what to make of it. And there was quite a bit of animosity between Steve and the employees at Pixar. One of the biggest bones of contention had to do with employee compensation. The backstory with Pixar when it came to stock options was that effectively they didn't have a stock option plan. There were no stock options. And this had been something that Steve had promised its employees for quite a number of years. Now, because this might not be obvious to everyone, let's explain what Lawrence means here. Why why was this so important? Right. So for a lot of people, when they join a startup, they have to accept a lower salary than what they might get if they went to work for a big established company. So to make up for that, startups usually give their employees the option to buy stock in the company at some point in the future at a previously agreed upon lower price. And if the company gets acquired for a lot of money or goes public, those employees' stock suddenly gets very, very valuable. Oh, it's every startup employee's dream. And without these stock options granted to employees, an IPO would really only be of financial benefit to the owner. You know, in this case, Steve Jobs and maybe a couple of other executives with special contracts. It wasn't something that would bring shared wealth to the entire company. And Pixar at this point had 140 employees. There was an enormous amount of pent-up frustration over that because especially at Pixar where many of the founding employees had been there for years, you know, really giving it the best years of their life in terms of their technological and engineering and creative capabilities, but they didn't have that currency that would reward them one day for taking those risks. And as we just heard Lawrence Levy say, it really was years of hard work. Pixar had been around as an independent company since 1986 when Jobs bought it from Lucasfilm. 
and it took Pixar's team of animators about four years to make Toy Story. So I guess creating a stock options plan was right at the top of Lawrence's to-do list. But for the IPO to go well and for Pixar's employees to get the reward they wanted, Toy Story had to be a hit. And not just like a few media mentions. They needed to be as successful as the biggest mega hits of all time, like up there with The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And that's partly because computer animation was and remains such an arduous process. It takes hours and hours just to create a few seconds of film. Think about all the salaries Pixar had to pay to keep so many employees working on a single film for years. And on top of that, the software and creating the computers needed to actually make the frames that all together would make up the movie. Right, and Pixar had to invent pretty much all of that process from scratch, making things even more expensive. Like they couldn't just buy it off the shelf. And this was all an experiment. It was something completely unproven because nobody had ever seen a computer animated movie before. So, you know, there were questions like, will the public tolerate 90 minutes of computer animation, right? They'd never seen that before. And so would that be something that people enjoyed? At the center of Pixar's creative team was John Lasseter. He directed Toy Story and has overseen all of Pixar's subsequent films. Today, he's the chief creative officer of Pixar Animation Studios, Walt Disney Animation Studios, and Disney Toon Studios. Meanwhile, Andrew Stanton and Pete Docter were the writers on Toy Story. But although the team was exceptionally creative, Pixar had really only ever made short movies and commercials before this. Okay, so let's walk through the actual process of making a computer animated movie. Well, I guess like most films, it starts with developing the main characters. So in Toy Story, that's Woody and Buzz Lightyear. So you draw a character. Uh, and then you make a clay model of it. So you take these brilliant artists and they make these unbelievable clay models of the characters. And then someone comes along and they draw a whole bunch of dots on that clay model. And then someone else uses those dots in order to create a digital version of that model. Now, it's worth noting that these digital dot drawings that Lawrence is talking about at this stage, they do not look like a real character, like Woody or like nothing recognizable. It's, it's actually a grid. It's, just a, it's like a, just a grid of dots and squares and shapes. Then within that computer model, a whole bunch of things need to happen. So first of all, that computer model has to get what they call articulation points, which are places where you can move it. So how do you move the eyes and the mouth and all of those aspects? Pixar's animators spent a lot of time thinking about how and where you can move which muscles on face, arms, legs, all to create the perception of realness. I spoke to one animator, Sean Krauss. He's still with Pixar, and most recently he was the supervising animator on Inside Out and Cars 3. But his very first movie was Toy Story, and he remembers the kinds of questions the animators were having to ask themselves. They were analyzing how do faces really work? You know, what drives the muscle structures? How, how, what are the basic shapes that go into an expression? You know, the question was always, is it easier to animate on the computer? And it depends. Things that are, are rigid, like cars, can be easier because that's very difficult to draw by hand. But things that are organic tend to be more difficult to manipulate and make feel organic with a computer. 
That's one reason why Toy Story is about toys and why in that original movie, you never really saw much of the human characters. At the time, it was too difficult to animate an entire movie in which every character was human. And another thing that I learned about animation, it's not just human characters that are really hard to develop. The whole natural world is difficult too, so that's why most of the movie happens inside Andy's bedroom. It's because the sky is another one of those things. It's just really hard to make it look real. So we don't think of it when we watch the film, but outdoor scenes are really complicated compared to indoor scenes. So to make an indoor scene, you basically need to create a box, which would be the equivalent of a room and make it look like a room. But for an outdoor scene, you need sky and you need trees and the trees need to have leaves. And if you're gonna have a street, the street has to have cars. So that final scene of the movie when Andy's driving away from his old home, that was one of the hardest things to pull off in the whole movie. At the same time, computer animation made new things possible, things that couldn't really be achieved with hand-drawn animation. Yeah, here's Sean again. For instance, subtlety. Just simple things like eye darts gave a layer of subtlety that, you, that were very difficult to get with traditional animation. With traditional animation, if you were going to do something subtle, because of the inherent uh, you know, uh, wiggliness of, of a hand-drawn line versus the perfection of a computer, you could get these little micro-movements that just exploded off the screen for the first time. And Pixar's animators were having to discover these tricks as they went along. Pixar basically invented the software in order to do that. And so that was one of its incredible contributions is that it literally invented its own system for dealing with that kind of complexity on a computer, which had never been done before at that time. And it wasn't just the software. Pixar had to build actual machines too, for everything from rendering the scenes to transferring the digital images onto a physical reel of film. So I remember one, it was just kind of a little room, and in the middle of the room, it's kind of a dark room, and there's this big slab metallic table, and there's this odd-looking microscope device sort of sitting on top of it. And I remember talking to the person running that, David DeFrancisco, and I'm like, what? I, I kind of even figure out what this is. And he said, well, we have to transfer these digital images to film. Eventually, that's what goes to a movie theater, is film. Now, throughout this whole process, Disney studio execs and its bean counters were lurking in the background, watching closely. After all, Disney was paying for Toy Story's production costs. And Pixar's relationship with Disney was complicated. We were this tiny little company with no resources whatsoever. Disney had been king of the animation hill for two generations. And the feeling was that if they got their capability in computer animation up and running, they could just swat Pixar off the map, you know, like an elephant to a fly. So Lawrence spent the first few weeks at Pixar trying to understand the different parts of the company's business. And he wanted to figure out how Pixar was actually going to make money from the films that they made. He wanted to build out an attractive business plan that he could show potential investors. And at the center of that was this cryptic contract that Pixar had signed with Disney several years before Lawrence even joined the company. So Lawrence, he flew out to Los Angeles to meet with Pixar's entertainment lawyer. I had seen that contract, but I hadn't paid that much attention to it. And I was sort of like, yeah, it's fine and I'll figure it out later kind of thing. Uh, 
But it turned out that the contracts in the entertainment industry are written in this code that only people in the entertainment industry understand. So Lawrence is sitting there, this is 1995, in his lawyer's swanky corporate suite. And what Lawrence learned was pretty devastating. So it turns out that Pixar had signed a three-film agreement. But think about this. It takes four years just to make one movie. So that's 12 years of commitment to Disney right there. And then another clause said that Pixar couldn't make any films for anyone else or even pitch an idea to another studio until after its contract with Disney had ended. And that includes ideas that Disney had looked at and rejected. And finally, with Hollywood's complex accounting systems, Pixar realized it would end up getting less than 10% of the revenue from its movies. It just shows how little leverage Steve Jobs must have had to have been forced to sign that agreement. I mean, in essence, Pixar needed to produce a gigantic hit to even make back a meaningful cut of the revenue. And they had to keep rolling out those mega hits for the next decade. That process of deciphering that contract was one of the most painful experiences I think I've went through in business. And if you think that contract is bad enough, you have to remember that Pixar's other business units weren't making very much money at all. This is the part of Pixar that was making commercials and that sold a software for rendering graphics called RenderMan. Yeah, and Pixar wasn't making enough money from those units to cover its overheads. So when Lawrence first joined Pixar, the company had to go through this monthly ordeal where Ed Catmull, one of the founders of Pixar, would have to tell Steve Jobs how much money the company needed just to make it to the end of the month. And Steve Jobs was having to write out personal checks just to keep the company afloat. So the odds are really stacked against Pixar at this point. They're doing this incredibly expensive thing that they've been building up to for years. And what they're trying to do is something that no one's really ever actually accomplished before. And on top of that, to make back enough money, they needed this unproven thing to be a massive success. And they were trying to prove to Wall Street's skeptical investors that Pixar could be a viable, independent company worthy of their money. So, in other words, no pressure at all. <laughs> the whole future of Pixar was coming down to a single number. The opening weekend box office for Toy Story. The atmosphere of Pixar as it tried to finish Toy Story was like pedal to the metal. There's no time for thinking. There's no, We just have to go, right? Go, 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 right? Working morning, you know, noon and night, trying to get this done. You know, I think that's true of of, you know, a lot of invention, a lot of innovation, you know, as you're trying to get something done that's never been done before, uh, you, you have to have sort of just this relentless focus on trying to finish and almost put blinders on and go for it. And that was the atmosphere within the company, you know, we're just going for it. The animators were gunning so hard to finish the film that a lot of people hadn't even seen the completed movie until the moment when the lights went down at the preview. We all just were glowing, and we had a great time just talking about the film, complimenting each other, because it was the first time we had seen what the lighting department had done. It was the first time we had seen what the cloth you know, and shading departments had done for, for, uh, in a big way. You know, we'd seen bits and pieces along the way, but we hadn't heard the music through the whole film yet. Meanwhile, Lawrence took his whole family to the premiere in Los Angeles. And his wife, Hillary, she also spoke to me. And here's how she remembers the audience reaction. I was almost holding my breath throughout the entire movie, and I remember as it closed, as it ended, and the credits were, were coming on, 
this just roar of applause. And I just looked around to see if people were sort of clapping just to be nice or if they really had some excitement in their faces. And I saw the latter. I mean, people were just flabbergasted by what they saw on the screen. And it was pretty much at that moment that I knew that Pixar was okay. Which brings us to this week's happy ending. Toy Story went on, of course, to become a blockbuster. It made $29 million in the US on its opening weekend. And eventually it clocked up $373 million worldwide. Pixar went public as planned on the 30th of November, 1995. Pixar's stock boomed over the next decade and Disney ended up buying it for $7.4 billion in 2006. We should note that before the IPO, Pixar's employees got their reward too. Lawrence Levy was able to convince Steve Jobs to give employees stock options. And as for Steve Jobs, he not only recovered his reputation, but it was actually Pixar's IPO that made him a billionaire. His relationship with the company improved, and now Pixar's contribution to animation has really transformed the entire genre. It's really incredible, Pia, to reflect on how important to really the history of cinema that this formative time in Pixar's history was. I mean, if you look at almost all animated movies these days have an element of computer animation, and those early employees of Pixar have kind of gone to populate the entire film industry. Right. And it's been a while since a fully hand-drawn animation was released. I checked in with Disney about it, and their last feature film was Winnie the Pooh back in 2011. Wow. Can I tell you, I've tried to introduce my kids to, to great movies, and we've sort of made our way through the whole Pixar oeuvre. And they're some of my favorite movies. I mean, we just watched WALL-E and Inside Out. I mean, it's like a truly remarkable body of work. Well, the most recent animated film I watched was, was Frozen. And it really struck me how incredibly far the technology has come. You know, that movie has humans as all their main characters. It's got these beautiful, dramatic landscapes. And when I rewatched Toy Story when I was writing up this podcast, it struck me that, you know, it's come a really long way yeah, since then. They're, they're no longer trying to hide the faces of the humans. I wonder, I mean, the other part of this seminal moment in Pixar history is the IPO. Uh, did, did the initial public offering elevate the status of animators in Hollywood, do you think? Are they now seen more as technology workers? Uh, well, I mean, Lawrence goes into this a bit in his book, and it's interesting that Pixar was operating in this kind of gray zone. It wasn't totally Silicon Valley, but it certainly wasn't completely Hollywood either. And um, it was a real process to try and figure out whether Pixar should be treated like an animation or an entertainment company. And I think eventually, yes, it most certainly did. It's uh, There are lines in, in all the books now saying that Pixar was kind of an exception to the rule as far as entertainment IPOs go. Well, thanks, Pia. You've inspired me to go back and rewatch the original Toy Story. <laughs> and that's it for this week's Decrypted. Thanks for listening. And tell us, what do you remember about that first time you saw Toy Story? You can find me on Twitter at at Brad Stone. And I'm at Pia Gadkari. Or you can email Pia at P-G-A-D-K-A-R-I at Bloomberg.net. You can find Decrypted on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. It helps more listeners discover the show. And one quick note before we let you go. In our previous episode about School 42, a study session organizer that we identified as Mason Young, his name is actually Kane York. 
This episode was produced by Aki Ito, Magnus Henriksen, and Liz Smith, with help from Emily Buso. Alec McCabe is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Hey there, it's Jamie Tarabay, host of Foundering. I want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you're not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with star athletes, entertainers and executives like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media and entertainment and dives into the wins, losses and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.